BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm excited about an awesome new sponsor. They're called 10,000. They make the best workout shorts and shirts I've ever worn. Their shirts were developed by real-life special ops guys who got it just right. Later on, I'll talk about my own experience with 10,000 and how to find out more at 10,000.cc, code Frank. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now back to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Tell me why I shouldn't quit right now. You can't quit. You're fired. And I just knew that something bad was about to happen. When you come out publicly, you don't do anything small. I remember each one with a vote. This scares the hell out of me. I'm going to be honest with you. It's happening to me again right now. What is this? Alleged victims across the U.S. intelligence community. How does the U.S. government process that? This is absolute nonsense. It is happening domestically, and we need to get to the bottom of it. This should be at or near the top of the FBI's priorities for uh, counterintelligence and national security investigations. This is like an act of war, really, right? We've got a major problem on our hands. Olivia Troy worked on national security and homeland security issues at the National Counterterrorism Center, the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, and the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Olivia went on to serve as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, and also served on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. She resigned from the White House in August 2020. After leaving the White House, Olivia became an outspoken critic of the Trump administration and publicly supported Joe Biden in the 2020 election. She's an advisor to Defending Democracy Together, a conservative, anti-Donald Trump political group known for its Republicans for the Rule of Law initiative. All of that could easily fill our entire episode. Yet, that's not why I asked Olivia to join us. We learned for the first time during a February episode of 60 Minutes 
that Olivia Troy fell ill in the summer of 2019 while descending a set of stairs in front of the Eisenhower Executive Office building adjacent to the West Wing of the White House. And we learned that she isn't the only government official believed to have been a victim of Havana Syndrome on U.S. soil. Olivia Troy joins us in this episode. Olivia, I'm thrilled that we are able to do this on this episode. And um, as I've said in my intro, we could spend a whole hour just talking about your career and life in the Trump administration working for Mike Pence. But we've got a lot of more ground to cover today with regard to Havana syndrome. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't start by asking you, how did you end up as an advisor to Mike Pence? <laughs> Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, so here, here's the reality. I started, um, I was at DHS. I was at the Department of Homeland Security. I had spent most of my career working on counterterrorism and homeland security issues. And uh, I was asked by DHS leadership uh, that this role had come open. Traditionally, in the past, it has been filled by a Coast Guard person and that Coast Guard person's uh, rotation was coming to an end. And they came to me and said, you know, we want someone that has a lot of broad experience. I had been around the community for quite some time, the national security community. And they said, we want someone that also has worked on a lot of the executive orders and a lot of the policies because I had been a DHS when the Trump administration came into office. And so I was familiar with a lot of the events happening. I was familiar with um, some of the immigration efforts, the stats. So I could really kind of come in and, and hit the ground running. And so they said, would you be willing to interview for this? Now, I'll be honest, it was a surprise when I, when I got asked to interview for it. I had a conversation with my family and I said, you know, we are familiar with the Trump administration, obviously. I had worked a lot of, uh, on a lot of challenging issues, I would say, at DHS in my role there because I was chief of policy for the intelligence division. So I worked on a number of coordination across the intelligence community in response to some of these executive orders in the Trump administration. So long story short, I went and I interviewed for it. I made the decision based on the fact that when people go and work at the National Security Council in the White House, they do it because they feel like it is a call to serve and you're there to make a difference and you hope that you'll bring your expertise and do your best to represent your agency and the community that you're coming from. And so I, I went in, I, I met with, actually, I went through four rounds of interviews, believe it or not, because when I interviewed for the first time, that person ended up getting removed from, from the role as national security advisor. Uh, uh, so they offered me the job. And then they called me and said, wait, never mind, just kidding, you're going to have to re interview again all over after that person was removed from it. So at that point I said, okay, this is so classic Trump administration, right? We see this happen all the time. People get fired all the time. <laughs> so I said, do I really want to do this? Yeah. But I proceeded in it and I, you know, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew of Mike Pence, obviously I was familiar with him as a Congressman. I, I, what I mean to say is I was not, I did not work for Mike Pence previously. I had no connection actually to the former vice president politically in any way. Uh, the first time I met Mike Pence was when I was introduced to him as this is going to be your new Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor. You know, you know, that that's a positive thing in the sense that so many times and I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir 
you'll see just kind of political cronies brought up who may or may not have any subject matter expertise or experience. So this is actually, although there's dysfunction and having to be re-interviewed and all that stuff, this is actually a start, starting off fairly well. Yeah, look, I, uh, I remember, I mean, he was, um, he was very welcoming. You know, the Coast Guard person that I was taking over for said, you know, I'm going to be wrapping up. She will be taking over the portfolio for me. And we were there as career people. Uh, I was there as a career person serving in my role. Uh, Mike Pence, you know, welcomed me. He said, can you believe where we are sitting here today? And he really seemed to, um, it was a very respectful towards the office that we were sitting in. And he said to me, take a, take a moment to look around and take it in. And I said, yeah, it's an honor and an absolute privilege to be sitting here in the office of the vice president of the United States, sir. And that was the beginning of what it was. And so I think I began, I came to know Mike Pence in my role. He is tough to get to know, I'll be honest. He keeps his cards very close to his chest. It's a very tight circle around him. Uh, the previous person that had served in the role said, you know, we were working on Maryland floods at the time and it was my second day and they called me and he says, we've got to go, we've got to brief him. And he was like, just so you know, don't get used to this. I, I rarely ever saw him. We don't really brief him often. And I was completely confused because I was like, how do you do your job then? But to get this right, the vice the vice president is telling you, don't get don't get too used to uh, for us to go brief the president. No, no, no. This is no, no. I'm talking about the current Homeland advisor. He oh, says, I don't gotcha. get used to seeing the vice president too much. We don't, gotcha. you know, we, I, I don't interact with him directly very much. And and I said, okay, so I just, you know, lucked into it that on my second day, there we were. But I'll say, uh, I did not have that same experience. I saw Mike Pence quite a bit. I worked on a lot of very hard issues because in my tenure, uh, look, I covered natural disasters. I covered uh, mass shootings. I covered any domestic terrorism incident and I covered global emerging threats and events. So I was very busy. Uh, day and, and night. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a lot on the plate. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, you played a role in the COVID uh, task force. I did. I had been attending the COVID meetings from day one on the task force. And then I was, you know, there in the representing the vice president's office and just making sure that I was paying attention, covering at briefing General Kellogg and the vice president and Mark Short at the time, whenever needed. And so when Mike Pence takes over the task force, it's basically all me because I had been following this from day one. I knew everything that was happening. I had been tracking what was happening in the pandemic and the virus in China. And so I become basically the lead staffer for the entire task force because he owns it now. And Dr. Burks joins the team. I worked very closely with her. I shared an office with her for quite some time. And then we, we, we got moved to the West Wing and I had an office outside at some point, you'll laugh at this, at some point I end up with three offices because I, like I, I'm in the secure office, I've got an office in the Eisenhower building and then I have an office in the West Wing. The West Wing is so small, I'll tell you that. And we were basically at the bottom level and there is no cell phone signal. And so Mike Pence couldn't call me because I couldn't get the signal for the phone. And I said, this is ridiculous. So instead I said, I'm going back across and I'm just going to run back and forth because yeah. I need to be able to answer my phone. Yeah, communication is kind of important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I get that. But I, but I, but it is interesting that in a in a town where office space is at a premium, even for the fanciest titles in an administration, you you actually at one point had three different spaces. That's that's kind of hysterical. But yeah, it'd be nice to talk to your boss occasionally. Now, 
at some point, and I'm, I'm, our listeners, our listeners don't, we don't have a video component to the podcast, but I'm going to describe for them a sign behind that I see behind you, Olivia, on the wall. And it says, always find time for the things that make you feel happy to be alive. You talked about how, what an honor it is to walk into that building and serve every day. But at some point, Olivia, did, did the sign on that wall you've got behind you become a reality where things were not making you feel happy to be alive? Yeah, look, I think um, I had to dig deep a lot during my tenure in the White House. There were days when I think I the signs apropos because I would be walking out of the Eisenhower Executive Office building and I would walk out to West Exec Avenue and it would be nighttime and it would be dark and I'd look out towards the White House and I would be upset about some of the things that I witnessed that day and was trying to navigate are you actually making a difference or are you just enabling and being part of something that is counter to what you really believe in? Uh, and so it was, I think, a moral struggle probably my, for a lot of the time, just because it was, it was a very challenging environment and a lot of the policies, you know, I, I didn't necessarily agree with. And I would look out and I would say, you know, you're here to serve the American people. And I would take that in probably every night, take a deep breath and remember that. And I tried very much to keep myself grounded in that. I saw a lot of palace intrigue, as I'll call it, where I saw people really change. I saw people change as a person. I saw people become different along the way. People that I'd even known for a long time or people that I had worked with very closely who became a different kind of person in their tenure there. And I remember as I watched that, pulling myself back from it, saying, remember that you are here to serve in a very factually neutral way to make a difference. And don't get sucked into that. It just seems like for so many people like you, there was this moral dilemma of, do I hang in here and try to make a difference? And then is there, you know, does there come a point where I'm not able to make a difference and I'm part of something I, I, I need not to be a part of? Was it a cumulative effect for you to get to that point? And, and, and if so, was there one kind of final straw, policy-wise, uh, perhaps, that where you said that that's enough? Yeah, I think it was cumulative over time, for sure. I, you know, there were many moments I think that most people would have been like, I'm done <laughs> along the way. Look, I'll probably in my first week when I got there, I was in the meetings about child separation, very confused and shocked at what I was hearing. And trying to process it all. Uh, you know, it's a different perspective when you're sitting in the White House compared to when you're working at an agency, right? Now you're seeing it really front and center at the very highest levels across the board. And that was hard to watch because I was concerned about some of the things that were being said in the meetings. But as it progressed, I will say that I think the incident that happened at Lafayette Square in the summer of 2020, that was a very upsetting thing to see play out, especially the way it was carried out. And I'll say by that point, uh, I will say that I had seen so much about the COVID pandemic and what was happening and the way it was being handled that it just became enough. And I, you know, I felt that it would be hypocritical for me to say that I've spent my entire career trying to protect Americans and working on efforts for the security of Americans. And at some point, 
it was a personal choice to leave because I said, you know, our, at this point, we're actually actively putting people in harm's way. So I don't know if I can sit here and watch this and be a part of this and say that in good faith, I'm actually protecting Americans. Am I really doing that right now? I mean, I'm doing everything I can to support the doctors on the task force. I'm doing everything I can to share information. But when you're constantly being undermined and you're watching things happen that are completely out of your control, I said enough. But I, I will never forget the day of Lafayette Square. I came home that night. I was really upset at the clearing of the square, the way they used law enforcement. I know law enforcement people that were there who were not necessarily thrilled to be there because those are not their roles. That's not what they do. They have other jobs to be doing. And I remember walking into someone's office in the vice president's office and saying, tell me why I shouldn't quit right now. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you've just listed a, a small litany of, of things. Any one of them would have created a moral dilemma in any reasonable person, a, a strategy of separating parents from their children, not, not as an incidental consequence, but as a strategy getting COVID wrong, perhaps even deliberately to downplay it. Um, and then finally, you know, for, for me, the image of General Milley in Lafayette Square was something I just thought was abysmal. Yeah, I, um, yeah I've got to say that when the second I saw Bill Barr out there, <laughs> I felt like he was doing an inspection of the troops. And I knew I had been around, I have seen this machine in action. And I just knew that something bad was about to happen. And look, I had been walking around the square right before. Yeah. I had gone out. Yeah. You've reminded us of something, you know, uh, sadly that, you know, as Bill Barr tr continues his rehab tour with his book that, you know, doesn't come up often enough, which is that, God darn it, he was standing there in Lafayette Square as the Attorney General of the United States. Yeah. Fitness has been a part of my daily life since my days at the FBI Academy. Most days, I'm either weight training or getting some cardio in or both. That's why I need workout gear that lasts, that's comfortable, and has the best fit. And that's why, for the past couple of months when I'm in the gym... I'm wearing shirts and shorts made by 10,000. 10,000 makes the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts I've ever worn. I've been wearing their tactical short, the ultimate combination of durability, mobility, and versatility. And their interval short, a versatile short, perfect for any workout. The tactical short was developed and tested with over 50 special ops members who put it to the test by rucking, swimming, lifting, and just all around abusing it, producing the holy grail of tough workout shorts. The interval short is perfect for gym days, spinning, short runs, high interval training, and outdoor workouts. They both have great features like permanent anti-order protection, an optional liner that's comfortable and prevents chafing, four-way stretch, and breathable and lightweight shell fabric. The brand believes in being better than yesterday, a stoic dedication to continuous improvement, not overnight success. They have a team of over 200 athletes test their gear to ensure the perfect design, fabric, trims, and fit. There's free shipping and free returns, and check it out, there's a lifetime guarantee. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000, that's the words, not the number, dot CC, code Frank, to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000, dot CC, code Frank. Okay, so the decision is made. It's time for you to move on. And what, what was, when you announced that, when you made that decision, was it a, hey, you can't quit, you're fired? What, what, was it, no, you can't fire me, I quit? <laughs> what, what was, go, well, how did that go down? 
Yeah, there was none of that. It was, uh, there was actually a very honest conversation between me and the vice president. He did ask me to stay in my role. Uh, I was asked by others to stay. They were concerned about how the task force would function without me. I was definitely sort of the glue that sort of operationally kept it running. And I, it was, it was, it was hard. It was hard to make a decision because I felt like I was letting down my teammates on the task force and others. I had a conversation with the national security advisor on the vice president's team. He, you know, he left that decision up to me. So I, I, I left in what I thought was a cordial, respectful manner. I just said, I, there are a number of things that are out of my control and I can, I feel like I can, I'm no longer making a difference in serving in the way that I believe and, and want to be. And I, I don't agree with a lot of things that are happening and therefore I should remove myself from this. And so, yes, uh, you know, and then I made the decision to come forward very publicly. And look, I'm going to tell you, I walked around for a month, uh, about a month after I had left the White House, struggling with this moral dilemma, walking around with a cloud, basically a dark cloud over my head, trying to clear my head, thinking about everything that I had seen in four years of working around the administration, thinking all of that and watching what was happening still on the COVID pandemic at the time, watching the behavior of Donald Trump and knowing what I personally believe is a very, very dangerous individual running for reelection. And I had seen a lot of this firsthand and I think I just made the decision to come forward very publicly right before the 2020 election. And it was a very hard decision to make. I had to quit my job at DHS you can't come forward when you're in the U.S. government in such a way in public. I had never spoken to the media. You're not allowed. I mean, I'm a career rental officer. You don't talk to the media unless you have very strict clearance to do that. So in order for me to tell people in a very honest way of how alarming this was, I had to leave that behind. And I, um, so yeah, so then that's when I guess General Kellogg and people come forward and say I was fired, which was news to me especially since they had been offering me uh, cabinet level positions in the administration and said, if we win, you know, we will make sure that we secure you a spot after I left. And so, you know, they used my email, my farewell email to people. And they're like, but she said, we're doing a glowing job. And I was like, yeah, that was a carefully worded email because nowhere in there do I think actually, I don't mention the president in the email. I mentioned the task force because I had seen how they had been treated. Um, I had seen the behavior towards them. I had seen people publish hit jobs on them through op-eds and planting stories mm-hmm. on them. And I don't know how you succeed, you know, as a task force when all of these things continue to happen around you. It was just ugly. It was uh, counterproductive. Well, look, I, I want you to know, I, I have the utmost respect, not only for your service in the administration, but your, your decision to, to leave and then to come out and discuss what you saw happening is a form of continued service to the nation. And I wish that we had more people like you who, who were able to do it. And I, I know how agonizing that must have been. We're going we're gonna to segue, though, on this topic of agonizing decisions and dilemmas as we now talk about the decision you made to come out publicly about Havana Syndrome. And it was very public, uh, Olivia. You, when you come out publicly, you don't do anything small. You you were on six. <laughs> you were on sixty minutes, and I'm at home watching sixty minutes. And I go, that's Olivia. And let's let's go ahead and talk about 
Havana syndrome, what happened to you and the decision to go public about the, the, the likely fact that you are a victim of what's called Havana syndrome? For many years, American personnel serving in Cuba, China, and elsewhere have experienced unexplained serious medical harm, including in some cases permanent brain injuries. These conditions are believed to be connected to a mysterious direct energy weapon used by those who are our adversaries. That kind of technology uh, is very real uh, and it can threaten people, not by bullets, simply by using the capabilities to send a wave into an embassy. That was another hard decision in life to make. Uh, I've been making a lot of these more recently with everything going on in the world, I guess. And I, I had struggled with this for a while. I had not, you know, at the time, I will say, of the impact. It's not like, you know, you're walking around and you're thinking, oh yeah, right now this is happening. I think this is what they call Havana syndrome, right? I mean, it happens and it's an anomaly and you kind of process it and move on. And I was you know, juggling a million things at the time. So I'll be honest, I will. So 60 Minutes approached me. Actually, they were calling me just to ask for context on perhaps someone else. And as I started talking uh, to the investigative reporter and producer, he started to ask me questions about, had I heard anything about anyone getting sick on the stairs? You know, typical kind of investigative journalism. So just to clarify for our listeners who may not have uh, seen the episode of 60 Minutes, you're being asked by uh, by one of their producers or reporters about uh, your knowledge of anyone falling ill on the stairs uh, out of the executive office building adjacent to the West Wing. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. And I, I remember kind of being a little bit sheepish during the conversation at the beginning of it because I was like, well... I know that people have been impacted this on uh, impacted by this on the White House grounds. Honestly, Frank, I thought I was like, how does how do they know? How do they know about me? Is what I was thinking because I was like, I have not spoken to a lot of people about this. I have kept this very very close to my chest, and I have not shared this. And I was like, how I, I, I am kind of confused because I feel like he's asking me about me. It turns out, I mean, he wasn't. He really wasn't. We had that conversation later. I think he was equally as shocked when finally I said to him, I know this happened to me. And I was pretty upset personally uh, at the end of the call. And he, I think he was upset for me. I mean, and it was a process for both of us kind of to process what had just happened. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you time to process. I'll say that the, the next 48 hours, I spent a lot of time talking to my family about it. You know, it's it's a very confusing process to go through, I guess. I don't know if that's the best word for it because it, at the time when it happens to you, you don't know what is, well, for many people, they don't know what is actually happening. Um, and I've had conversations now with other victims of this who have felt the same way. And it is hard to figure out, do you come forward? Do people believe you? How are you going to be treated by your colleagues if you do come forward? what is the process really for coming forward? How do you handle this? And what do you say? And so I, and for me, you know, these incidents were happened in 2019. 
and 2020. And what I'll say is I remember each one vividly because it, it felt like nothing I had ever felt before. Describe, describe that, that for us. What, what is, what are the symptoms you experienced? It came on very sudden for me. It happened on the stairs of the West exec uh, Avenue when you're, when I was walking out uh, the building at the end of the day, you know, I talked about this earlier where I would sometimes take in the white house grounds, uh, that majestic view of the white house. Um, and it hit very suddenly. I felt like a mounting pressure on my head. It was definitely debilitating. Like I, I, it was like dizziness and unsteadiness and a pain in my right ear that shot across my head. I felt very sick. I felt nauseous. I thought I was going to fall over. It was a weird sort of vertigo sensation, but not really. It was sort of a depth perception thing. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, don't fall down the stairs. You've got to make it down to the ground level. And I thought to myself, I was, I, you know, I said, am I having a stroke? Am I, what is actually happening to me right now? And I continued to walk. I continued to walk down West exec to try to study myself. I remember doing yoga exercises and thinking, is this like a panic attack? Cause that's a motion. I don't get panic attacks. Um, I I've never had a panic attack before. I've, I, I'm familiar with um, friends that suffer from that. I've, I, it was just a very unknown thing. I've never felt anything like that. Mm. Um, and so I continue to walk. It sort of subsided as I walked through the gate at the secret service checkpoint and continue to walk to my car. I remember sitting in my car thinking, can I drive home? Am I okay? It had started to subside. And I was like, I think I can drive home. I drove home that day. I think that was the one time I did mention to my husband and I just said something very weird happened after work today. I got dizzy. It was very unexpected. I don't know what that was. I remember thinking, did I drink water today? What did I eat today? I mean, I was thinking of all the things that it could be. Yeah, as any as any of us would. Am I dehydrated? Did I get a good night's sleep? Did I? What's going on? And you share this with your husband. I did, um, and then you know, he was like, "Well, I guess see how you feel tonight. See if it happens again." And I, you know, I said, "Yeah." I, but the strange thing is, I drink a lot of water. Anyone who knows me and anyone who saw me in the White House would always comment. And I just remember actually, because Doctor Brooks was like, "You're so good about this." I need to be better about it too, because I always had water with me wherever I went. And so I'm very good about that. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that probably that I, I remember not being able to sleep very well that night. I felt complete. I just felt off and still sort of a weird lingering kind of after effect of it. But then I didn't really have any of these symptoms later on. I mean, it, it gave me like a headache, I think at the time, but then I never experienced anything like that again until 2020, you know, I did not have that, that pounding out of the blue vertigo sensation until 2020, when I was walking out of the white house and I was on the ellipse and it was the exact same thing, the exact same sensation, the exact pounding on my head, the exact feeling of motor skills, trying to figure out, can I actually walk? Can I take a step? It was all of that. And, and I I remember thinking to myself, that thing, whatever that thing is, is back again. It's happening to me again right now. What is this? And I remember kind of being very shaken. I remember getting into my car and sitting there. And that time I felt really sick. And I was, I remember staying in my car for a little while, breathing again, it subsiding. And I remember thinking, 
that was really weird because that is what happened to me that one time last year. Do you seek medical attention? See a doctor? Do you tell anyone at work uh, what's going on? So I think, I think I maybe mentioned this to one friend, but I am working. Like by that point, we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic at the onset of it. And I am the lead staffer. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm, I, I am a person of faith. I'm, I'm very private about my faith, but I, Frank, I remember sitting in my car and saying like, God, I don't know what is happening to me. I don't know if I'm sick. I don't, but I just, I need you to give me the strength to not be sick. Can you hold off on this a little bit? Because I got a lot of work to do and we're in the middle of a lot right now. And I, I cannot be weak right now. I need all the strength I can to get, to get our team through this and to get the vice president through this. And I just took my role very, very seriously. I was very committed to it. And so I don't, I don't report it. I continue on. I, I then have another incident about a month or two later, same exact thing. This was not as powerful. And I am just kind of like, what is happening here? The weird thing is that it's not like it's happening every day. If it had happened like every day for several days, I would have been a doctor. I mean, I, I saw the doctor. I saw the White House clinic every single morning because I was being tested for COVID because I was around the vice president so much and, and at some times the president. And so I think that I would have then been like, I, I think I'm sick or something's happening, right? But because it wasn't like it was happening to me every single day and I was waking up and I was dizzy. Like my mom has vertigo. I know what vertigo is. I know it can be debilitating. It was not like that at all. So it would happen and then I would forget about it. And so to be honest, I continued to work. I also, I'll say at no point that I stop and think this is some sort of directed energy attack on me. This is yeah. what I've read about, about victims overseas and Havana, or that I've heard that is happening here domestically. Like I, that's just, I did not make that connection. And maybe I should have, I know some people, maybe victims have, not where my space is, not where my head is right now. Let's take a time out to talk about safety and security. And today, safety and security has to include cybersecurity. In fact, I say there's two kinds of people when it comes to cybersecurity, those who have been hacked and those who have been hacked but just don't know it yet. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One by going to Avast. Com. What I like most about Avast is its data breach monitoring that enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. I also like the PC speed up. It optimizes the background activity of your apps in order to speed up your PC. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Now let's get back safely to our guest. Yeah, I well, well, what, what you're describing is a theme that I've heard from others who may have been victimized as well, which is a, a couple of things. First, 
hey, I'm really busy, really busy, uh, often serving abroad. And, and we'll get to, um, in a moment, we'll get to the incredible significance of you um, and others being attacked on domestic soil. And as, a, as an FBI counterintelligence guy, th- this scares the hell out of me. I'm going to be honest with you. Because, you know, heretofore, our listeners are probably aware of, yeah, it's called Havana Syndrome because there were some incidents in Cuba. Yeah, there's been some other stuff overseas, but it's not happening here. It, it is apparently happening here, and that is extremely troubling. But this notion of victims saying, yep, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm incredibly busy right now. I'm in a very busy career, and, and I'm not paying attention to the news or connecting dots about this thing called Havana Syndrome. Why would I do that? And, and it'll go away. And, you know, add to it the personal private nature of generally of our health concerns, which is nobody's business. And so, but at some point you get this call from 60 Minutes and you're deciding, holy cow, I, he's describing what happened to me and you make that decision to go ahead and, and do some on-camera um, discussion. I do. So I had, uh, I had about a year before that, I think it was published in 2021, I read an article in The New Yorker. It was a very long piece. And in that article, they talk about the fact that there were White House staffers impacted by this. When I read that, and I did read it in 2021, I remember reading it and thinking, I know this happened to me. I believe them. I know they're telling the truth. And I wonder how many others, how many more of us are there that aren't talking about this? Uh, I had no idea who they were. And I remember texting a couple of other White House staff at the time, that article that I was still in touch with. uh, And I said, I'm pretty sure this happened to me. Honestly, one of them responded and said, I'm pretty sure that this happened to me as well. And that person came back and said, who do you think I should report this to? Or do you think there's someone I can talk to? And I said, yeah, let's dig around. So they, they reached out. I, I remember having a conversation with that person. I remember, and I remember talking to someone else who had been on White House staff and saying like, but how do we talk about this? Do you come back and say, hey, two years later, like, I know this happened to me. And who do you tell? And do they believe you? Or how does that, how does that work? And then we started, you know, I, I knew that there was like a task force forming. It was very unclear to me. So finally, when I get to 60 Minutes and I hear that there are others, and I have since then, actually after coming forward, have learned about so many others, I I start to realize that no one's talking about it because they're scared of their career. They're scared of their career implications. They're scared of having the stigma. You know, I mean, do I have like the Havana syndrome stamp on me forever now? There's a stigma of, do you believe these people? Because it's such an unknown thing. How do you, how do you talk about it? How do you explain it? How do you, how do you talk about it, especially when it's domestic, right? People are so used to it. Like you said, people are used to these overseas attacks. It is a very scary thing that it's happening here. How does a U.S. government process this? And how do you process it when it's happening on White, White House grounds and you're not sure how you're going to protect the most critical leaders of our country that are sitting there, right? I mean, how does yeah. that, how does that all play out? Right. So you're, you're, pro- you're, you're, you're processing this on multiple levels. There's a national security level. And then there's this really personal level where, gosh, there is a stigma attached to this. And, you know, I, I get a glimpse of that whenever I post or write or speak on TV about the latest incident or research. Yes. I get bombarded with, uh, on social media with many people saying, 
This is absolute nonsense. And and so I I get that and I I have it experienced what what you've experienced. I will also I also want to share with people that I am aware personally of people I I know as friends who have experienced this in their careers. And you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but I am appalled at how this is being handled by the US government. This is just is just Frank speaking, not necessarily Olivia, but I'm telling you you, if you're watching 60 Minutes or other shows and you're seeing, oh, they've got a handle on this, the CIA director has said they've got this figured out for healthcare purposes, they're taking care of their people. They, they may well be taking care of their people, better than they were perhaps uh, several months ago, but that's not happening across the entire U.S. intelligence community. And, and there are alleged victims across the U.S. intelligence community, and I'm seeing a stovepiped response I'm not seeing centralized healthcare and analysis, or or kind of um, you know get get let's level set this and get get on board with the, the right doctors and, and get everybody through the right place. I'm not seeing it, and I'm seeing naysayers even within the government and people who are supposed to be investigating this. Now add the element of U.S. soil to this, and this should be at, at the at or near the top of the FBI's priorities for uh, counterintelligence and national security investigations. Um, it's the FBI's job to monitor, surveil, detect, deter, defeat the the uh, operations of foreign intelligence services and foreign bad actors on U.S. soil. It's nobody else's job, and they got to get to it. They've got to get to it. If if it's true that's that a foreign actor, entity, terrorist organization, state sponsor can do this seemingly at will, not only abroad, but perhaps on, on White House property or directing it at White House property and officials, we've got a major problem on our hands and, and we need answers for that. So I've pontificated on my soapbox. When you get on 60 Minutes, Olivia, there's another kind of revelation, which is you discover there's a close colleague that's also talking to 60 Minutes. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yes. So first of all, I reported it. I went through the process. I talked to people in the U.S. government about my case. Um, I, I was also transparent. You know, I said I have spoken uh, to people at 60 Minutes who are doing a lot of investigative work on this. I would say great work, um, amazing work by people that are committed, and they've been working on this for years and tracking the stories of victims. And as I'm going through the process, uh, look, like you said, I can't even tell you the amount of trolling I've gotten and the amount of insane messages I have gotten people from people, some of them are really ugly. And I'm used to that. I've gotten a lot, I get trolled a lot. I got, I got attacked when I first came forward by people as a, you know, two, almost two years ago. But I will say that I can see why victims shy away from it because it is your personal health. It is a very personal thing that happened. You know that it's real. No one can take that away from you but it is ugly when people respond in that way. So I actually almost pulled my interview from 60 Minutes. I was like, am I, again, I'm back to that decision. Am I helping or hurting? Am I, am I gonna make a difference for these victims? Because I know that there are a lot more out there. After meeting with the US government, I know that the number is way higher than what people might think. It is a very serious thing and it is happening domestically and we need to get to the bottom of it. So. I then discover that a like a close friend of mine had been impacted impacted by it, and um, it's Miles. It's Miles Taylor, and Miles and I are friends. We have worked together. Tell tell us what Miles' role was at the White House. 
Yeah, he served at the Department of Homeland Security. He was on senior staff there. He was the chief of staff there. I had worked with Miles back in my DHS days. I had known him for a couple of years. Uh, I, he knew me. We were in touch when I was in the White House. Um, he then went to the private sector. We remained friends. Uh, we're, we're still very close friends today. Uh, we work on a lot of initiatives to, together. We advocate for things together. I had no idea that Miles had been impacted by this or his family. And so that tells you that we talk about so many different things. We never talked about this. And so I am completely caught off guard and surprised when I hear that he's part of uh, the 60 Minutes and that he had been impacted, his family had been impacted. And I, I was speechless because I was like, how, how many other people around me that I've worked with have been touched by this and yet we don't, we don't talk about it. It's like that thing you don't talk about. But in the end, that is partially why I made the decision to go ahead and talk about it publicly. I decided that this was so important. And for many of these victims who are still in the national security community, who are, who can't talk about it publicly, who can't, who are still trying to get medical care and who are being in many ways sort of ostracized by their colleagues for having sort of lived this in their stigma. And to me, it is upsetting to me that these are people that have served our country. We take polygraphs. We take every sort of clearance test out there, right? We are honest. So how can you treat a population like this that has served our country, goes through all these things? And, and how can you not believe some of these victims or how can you treat them in such yeah. a way that makes I sense? I agree. Um, you know, what, what's owed people is... Um, an honest, robust approach to investigation and a centralized, coordinated investigation um, that really should have should be run by the DNI, CIA and FBI, because it impacts across DOD's involved, State Department. You you name the three-letter intelligence agency, and there are people coming forward saying, I think I I think this happened to me. That cries out for the DNI to take a very strong role. And by that I mean not just telling Congress, yeah, yeah, we're coordinating, but actually tangible results with regard to centralized healthcare and and diagnosis, and then regular investigative updates and, and reports from, from, say, the FBI director and the CIA director to the White House. You know, for those uh, who need reminding, there have been alleged incidents involving Vice President Harris's uh, team being delayed, for example, on a trip to Vietnam because people were being impacted on the ground where she was headed. Um, U.S. personnel impacted, CIA uh, director, member of his close member of his team on the ground in India, um, being impacted, and so, and and for those who say, well, you know, people are having anxiety attacks or what have you, there are children, there are young young children, perhaps even babies, um, who've had to be hospitalized, receive medical care because of this. And for those who say there's no evidence of, uh, of direct damage, uh, au contraire, there are experts in the medical field who have looked at brain scans and absolutely see anomal- anomalies in common with some of these victims. So has this happened to everybody claiming it's happened to them? Likely not, but we've got a, we've got a core group who we need to take seriously here and, and figure it out. So speaking of that, Olivia, what, what signs have you seen? You've, you've gone public. What signs are there that this is being investigated? Who got in touch with you? Can, what can you talk about um, in terms of investigative follow-up? So I can say I 
I met with my home agency at the time. That's kind of the process. You have to go to, you're supposed to report it through your home agency. So mine was DHS. And there is a task force that I'm aware of that is looking at this thing. Um, there is no clear path for medical care for those impacted at DHS. I think state, maybe some one of the three, the three letter agencies have sort of a cohort that they're doing. But from what I can tell, if you're in a different agency and you're not part of that, you're, you're kind of on your own. I think they're still negotiating with the Department of Defense. You're still negotiating agreements with Walter Reed. I mean, it is a very, like you nailed it when you said it's very stovepiped from what I've seen. And also look, there are a lot of people upset over that report that was issued by the CIA that basically they felt sort of discounted it. And it was, I, I think the way it was worded made it seem like we've decided that there's nothing here, that it's not, you know, that this isn't legit. And for me, look, we, I, we, you and I have worked in this community. I know what analysis is. I can read through the tea leaves there and say, well, it's not that they, it's not real. It's inconclusive because they, they don't know yet. They, they are still trying to assess or whatever. And also some of that is classified, right? So they're not going to put that out there. So they don't have a conclusion where everything lines up. And so, but the way that they went about it and published it, I think was upsetting because um, look, I get that thrown in my face all the time too. I'll get articles that say like, they've already said that this isn't true, that this is a bunch of BS and no, no, it's not. They know it's real. Yeah, There are, yeah, there no, are and very senior people that have been impacted by this. Well, ha, ha, we, uh, the 60 minutes episode we're referring to uh, John Bolton came out and publicly said he's aware of, of these incidents, correct? Yes. And uh, I have had conversations with them. And again, I was in the White House when John Bolton was there and other staff. And look, I'm aware that there are national security staffers in the White House in this administration under Biden that have been impacted. And they are, they are still going through the process of this. And so I think in this case, when it comes to bureaucracy, in government, I think we really need to get moving on this and we need to understand it. We need to get to the bottom of it because when you are able to impact sort of the inner circles of some of the most senior people across the board in our national security and in these agencies, we have a serious threat and problem, right? And there are guesses on foreign adversaries, whoever they may be, we can pontificate on that. You know, I think, I think some people would just, you know, a belief of who it might be. Yeah. Are they using proxies here domestically? Right. What right. is really the story here? Because the fact that it's happening on our grounds is, you know, some would say, I mean, this is like an act of war really, right? But how do you talk about that? And how does the US government respond to that? And so I'm sure that that is part of the conversation is how do we do this in a, how, what's the decision process here, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated issue and I guess, my decision to go public is because I wanted people to know, like, this happened to me. I know many other victims that are still struggling, but it's happening too. And it's still going on today. And I am concerned for one, the victims, uh, you know, on 60 minutes, you see me get emotional. That was because we were talking about the children. And that is, that is one of the driving things that, that really drove me to go public because when you have people serving in these communities and their families are being impacted and these are innocent children who are literally innocent bystanders that right. are being impacted this and it's developed it, it's going to hurt probably their development in the long term yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, so, so look, I've, I've spent my life investigating things, and, and there's a practical, logistical dilemma here, but uh, in terms of how this would play out around the world in all the places it's allegedly played out. And, but I hear the naysayers and see them on social media and even, even respected columnists and journalists saying uh, this is impossible. No one state could put this many devices out there around the globe in these various alleged attack locations. Uh, this, you know, and I got a couple of comments on that. First, for those who are claiming this is some kind of rocket science and you'd have to be a genius to create such a, such a device, it's not at, at all. It's extremely simple. Um, pulsed uh, energy or microwave energy. Um, many scientists have written about the simplicity of this and have proven that countries like Russia, for example, have researched the use of this for decades. This is not new stuff. So number one. Number two, on the, on the mobility thing, where could it be put in a van, a car, a briefcase or something? Again, um, there's been research saying, yes, you, you absolutely could do this in a mobile fashion, uh, in a transportable fashion. Now, it does become a logistics challenge uh, for a state sponsor to put, you know, to have this done around the globe. And remember, if it's a country like Russia or China, an adversary, the American intelligence services and the allied services are on known and suspected intelligence officers constantly. There's constant right. surveillance occurring. So would they have seen this happen? And are they cross-referencing known locations? You know, Igor was here at the corner of Maple and First on Tuesday, and that's when an incident occurred, and we saw him with a box in his van. You know, is I would hope to God that that's happening, but if it's if it's not that simple, if are they as um, Olivia referenced the possibility of proxies being used, that's an that's an incredibly di- difficult challenge. Um, um, are they putting it through diplomatic pouches to transport devices around the globe? I don't know, but I know we need answers to this because I'll draw an analogy to the cybersecurity world. Those of our listeners who are savvy, and it's all of you, um, who read and research what happens in the cyber world every day, which is that foreign actors signal us and kind of wave hello in our infrastructure, in our power grids. Uh, Russia's famous for this, as well as China. Hey, we're here. We can take down this water supply whenever we want to. We do the same to them. Um, This is kind of like that. It, it, It could be like that. It could be a foreign power saying we, we could debilitate a, an official, a leader, even your vice president or your CIA director or your president or his secret service detail. We could debilitate them in real time very easily. And that's, a, that's an awful scenario that, that we, need, we need answers for. Yeah, that is incredibly dangerous for our country. Yeah, your thoughts, Olivia, your thoughts on, on kind of the, the, the challenges of um, investigating something that allegedly is happening in different places around the world, um, portability, the science of it. Have you thought that through? Like this can be, it can be done. It is not that complicated. Uh, but I think, you know, I, to your earlier question, by the way, I, I have met, I, I did meet with the FBI, FBI recently. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to get into the questions or their investigation out of respect for it. You know, it, it did make me wonder, would they have met with me if I hadn't gone public? Great question. I don't know. Right, right. Well, that's part of this. Curious about that. That's part of the equation of deciding to go public because, unfortunately, for all the reasons we've recounted here, there are times in the in the life of a of a of a government uh, operation where public pressure actually does result in something good happening. And so, it's my hope with this podcast not only that 
we get more awareness around this, but that this reaches government officials and scientists who might say, you know, I, I, I've got to really take this very seriously. And if someone, if some potential victim listens to us and comes forward and makes that decision because of this podcast, then we'll, we'll have done something good. Yeah. And look, I mean, to the victims out there, it may feel very isolating and you may feel like you are sort of being intimidated by your colleagues because I'm aware, I'm aware that that is happening and you may be, you feel ashamed and you may not want to come forward. And I guess, I guess to that and to them, I would say, you know, you aren't, you're not alone. And there are many people who understand how serious this is. And I believe you and we believe you. And you know, for all those who are serving in the national security community, who may be the naysayers, because I hear that there are, and there's some senior people in that community who have along the way been naysayers and have refused to do or really focus on these, uh, this investigation and on focused on actually pushing to actually get to the bottom of it for, for various reasons. I would say like, this is very real. And it, I don't see this going away anytime soon judging from what the conversations I've had and from what others are seeing, we know that this is serious and we need to get to the bottom of it um, as soon as possible. Uh, and collectively, we, you know, it's so, you know, I think that there is some movement now. Um, I think it's still hard for a lot of the victims in terms of the medical care and things like that, that still there's a lot more that needs to be done. I'm grateful for your voice. Honestly, Frank, I'm grateful for your podcast and the fact that you do talk about this. A lot of people don't want to talk about this, you know, for the same reasons you, you know, you'll get the pushback too. And people will tell you like, this is nothing. This is nonsense. I'll remind people that there was a time I believe where people thought PTSD was nonsense mm, and it yeah. is very real. Yeah. 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 And we would never say that today. Indeed. Good point. Olivia, Troy, thank you for your service on so many levels to the country and service demands sacrifice sometimes. And you've, you've had that, um, you've had more than your share of that. So we're grateful for that and grateful for your, your time here. You're welcome back here anytime. We wish you the best of uh, health and uh, good fortune. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. Thanks for joining our conversation on Havana Syndrome with Olivia Troy. Be sure to join us next time as we continue to go behind and beyond the Bureau with Frank Vigluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Vigluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live 
bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 